Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students seeking the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today I have a great guest, Bill Epp, who's incredible. He's a master storyteller who I first heard at the International Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. This was a great follow-up episode to my discussion with Jeff Zeig when we talked a lot about the art of communication and making it impactful. So, if you enjoyed this episode, check out Jeff's episode. Also, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and tell at least one friend. All right. Without further ado, Bill Lepp. Today I have on Bill Lepp, who is, um, I'm going to say one of the greatest storytellers I've, I've ever heard. I'm not going to say the greatest, but he's probably up there. <laughs> he's definitely up there. Um, I'm super excited to have him on, um, and I want to give you an opportunity, Bill, to just talk a little bit about yourself, and then I'm going to um, sort of bridge the gap about why we're having a storyteller come on a, a psychotherapy podcast. Okay. Uh, first, I'm not going to argue with you about being one of the greatest storytellers <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, well, my name is Bill Lepp. I live in South Charleston, West Virginia, and uh, it's been my full-time job for oh gosh, at least the last 16 years to uh, travel all around the country telling stories in libraries, storytelling festivals, corporate events, social clubs. Basically, any place somebody needs some good stories and has a little bit of money to pay me, I'm happy to go there and tell stories. So, uh, And then uh, kind of as a result of my storytelling activities, I've published two children's books. Uh, the Princess and the Pickup Truck is the most recent. The King of Little Things is the better known. And then I have a whole slew of, uh, you know, storytelling CDs that uh, uh, are collections of most of my material or a lot of my material. And uh, almost all of my material is stuff that I sit down and write myself based on very often based on some little aspect of something that's happened in my life that I just turn I keep asking, you know, why, 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 what, 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 to see where it can go, and they, they eventually all turn into tall tales. Humorous tall tales is the goal. Yeah. Um, so I first saw you, I want to say three years ago, at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro. I didn't see you all weekend, and you were doing a story on Sunday. And, we, and my wife and I were like, we got to go. I'm like, I love this place. This is so great. Um, let's just watch one more <laughs> and you get up on stage and you tell us you, you <laughs> it's funny to even think about it now because apparently people there know who you were you were you were gonna yeah. you, you said I'm gonna tell a story about the king of little things and the crowd went crazy and I was like what's going on <laughs> like, like what is going on you proceed to just regale us with um just one of the best stories I've ever I've ever heard in my entire life, and my wife and I left on left on a high note, and we went back Great. to um, Louisiana where where we were living, and it was just incredible. It was just incredible, um, and that bridges directly into psychotherapy because we had on Jeff Zeig a few weeks a few weeks ago, who is one of the big names sort of psychotherapists, and his his thing is. Therapy must be emotionally impactful. And so he spent some time studying artists, um, musicians, directors, composers, trying to figure out how they thought so that he could do the same thing in his therapy sessions. And I thought, 
that's a brilliant idea. Let me reach out to someone who knows about stories, someone who knows about stories. So that's how I reached out to you. Um, and I guess the first question is, how did you get into storytelling? Like that's not a traditional sort of pathway. Well, I grew up in a family where everybody told stories all the time. Uh, in our family, the truth was fluid, I like to say. <laughs> everybody was allowed to, if they found a way to make a story better, that was okay. And it was always, it was never malicious. It was just always up to the listener to decide what was true. So I grew up listening to a lot of enhanced stories um, from my grandfather and my uncles and my cousins. Uh, tends to mostly be the men in my family that do the harder lying. And then uh, in, uh, I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little kid. And I found out, of course, that it's very difficult to get anything published or to get anybody to read anything that you've written. And in 1983, they started a contest in West Virginia called the West Virginia Liars Contest, which is a tall tale telling contest. And in 1986, my older brother, Paul, who has since passed away, started doing the Liars Contest. He was incredibly successful. He won it six times. And I watched him do it for two or three years and thought to myself, you know what, I could do that. And so I sat down and I wrote my first tall tale and learned it and got up and told it to the Liars Contest crowd. And I won second place. And I discovered, I guess, uh, whereas being a writer, it's difficult to get things to read, uh, people to get things. It's difficult to get people to read things you write. When you're a storyteller, you can write a story and learn it. And then people have to listen to you unless they can't outrun you. So <laughs> I started getting invited to, you know, church spaghetti dinners or Cub Scout Blue and Gold Banquets, that sort of thing. And did, I didn't know that you could be a professional storyteller for about the first eight years that I was telling stories. And then in 1998, my wife and I got our first computer and we discovered this thing called the Internet. And I looked up storytelling and discovered that there were storytelling festivals all over the country and thought, you know, I should pursue this. And then we had a really small festival here in West Virginia called the West Virginia Storytelling Festival, as a matter of fact. And they brought in one nationally touring professional storyteller named Ed Stivender. And I saw Ed and was just blown away. He was the first full-time professional storyteller I've ever seen. Just blown away by his uh, performance. And more importantly, he saw me and recommended that I do a spot at the National Storytelling Festival. So in 2000, I got to do a 15-minute spot at the Exchange Place, and um, things just took off from there. In 2002, I got invited to the National Festival full-time, I mean, for the first time as a feature teller. And then in 2003, I went full-time as a storyteller, and I've been, been doing it ever since. What what were you doing before you were telling telling stories? Uh, several things. When I got out of college, I worked at a camp for children who had started their legal careers early. And uh, they had been, uh, well, they'd had the choice to go to a, a regular sort of juvenile facility or to come to this camp, and they chose to come to the camp. And so I was working as a teacher counselor for kids with uh, some emotional and learning problems. And that, that's where I met my wife. And then I went to divinity school and I was a pastor, a United Methodist pastor for four years. And also uh, during part of that time, I was the director of educational programming for the West Virginia Division of Culture and History. Wow. Wow. 
there's a there's a there's a lot in that story that I that I resonate with. Um, having you know, being a counselor, you've you've worked in me being a counselor. It sounds like you've worked in some of the same sort of situations that I've had to work in. So yeah, probably. But you sound like you have a degree that's more tuned to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was I mean, and this goes back to kind of what we're talking about. Like that is true. And then um, I had to learn to just talk to people. And one of the easiest ways to, I used to work at a psych ward before I did my, before I did my current job. Um, wow. And about, I would say 80% of the time I'd go in and I'd have a group and people would just be, you know, it's not either coming back from some sort of psychotic break or coming down. And I would just tell a story. There's a few stories that I, that I've loved. And, um, I was amazed at how engaged people would become at a story that you think would never, um, you know, weird, weird stories. Like I, there was a period of time where I would tell the Jabberwocky from Alice in Wonderland. And I'd be like, look, uh-huh. this is a story about people walking through life. Then they, then something happens and they wake up and the world is upside down. And people would like ball, you know what I mean? Because it just resonated with them. Right. So stories are, you know, very, very powerful. Um, when when you made that that switch in two thousand three, how did you go full time into storytelling? I mean, what is that a? Do you just call people and say I want to do I want to do your conference or, or do you do? Just uh, get invited or? Yeah, I, I was really really fortunate in that uh, once I told my story at the exchange place in 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 at the national storytelling festival uh things just kind of took off after that people were calling me and i haven't i know uh i would hate to hear me say this if i was having difficulty getting hired um but i've i've never ever since then people have just every time i do a show somewhere almost every show i do somebody in that audience hires me to do something else so i've never really had to do any advertising beyond standing on stage and uh, telling the absolute best story that I can tell in front of the audience that I'm in front. And then somebody out there hears me and thinks, wow, they would be, that guy would be great at my um, conference or storytelling festival or, or, you know, corporate event or whatever it is. So I hate to use the term word of mouth because it makes it sound like I'm sounding up, you know, making some sort of stupid pun. Um, But I tell a story, people hear me, uh, they tell, uh, you know, they hire me to come somewhere else and tell somebody else that I was good, and it just kind of keeps going from there. So sort of snowballs, right? Okay. So I think one of the questions is, um, if we're thinking about how this relates to making an emotional impact on people, how, I mean, how do you even think? How do you even think about stories? Because your 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 stories aren't just you do a good job of drawing people in, of people putting people through, you know, the ups and downs of whatever story it is. And then at the end, there's this sense of like, wow, that was a roller coaster. How do you, how do you think about that? Well, first of all, I think all good storytelling is an extension of the front porch or the supper table where people just sit around and are having a conversation. I think all good storytelling is a conversation by which I mean, it's not a, it's not a presentation. I'm, I'm not doing theater. There's no fourth wall. Uh, I am actively engaged with my audience. I'm seeing how they respond to things. If they look like they're um, not understanding, 
then I find a way to uh, by saying I think all oh, good storytelling is a conversation. What I mean is that is when you're having a conversation, let's just say you're sitting around at the supper table with your Uncle Bob and your Uncle Charlie, and your Uncle Bob says, "Do you remember the time that Aunt Bertha drove the Buick into the river?" And your other uncle, now I forget what I named him, uh, but your other uncle says, no, that wasn't Aunt Bertha, that was Aunt Jenny. And then someone else says, yeah, but it wasn't a Buick, it was a Chevy. And then, so everybody's telling the same story. Everybody's trying to go through all of the facts and get them straight about who, which aunt drove which car into the river. So one story is being told, but it's being told corporately because other people are injecting information. And then you're sitting there, and you never knew Aunt Bertha, so you say, wait, who was Aunt Bertha? And then someone in that conversation has to stop and explain to you that Aunt Bertha was your your dad's you know, sister who disappeared in 1944, or whatever it is. There's all kinds of people adding information to the story and asking questions about the story. So my job, when I get up on stage, is to... It, it's obviously not polite for the audience to, to ask me questions, so my job, especially when I'm creating a story is to try and think what would people be interjecting into this conversation? What would people be asking as, as we were having this conversation? So I'm trying to assemble all that information uh, before I get up on stage so that when I get up on stage, it sounds like you and I are kind of hashing out through a conversation um, that I'm sort of in charge of. And, and hopefully you don't have to ask any questions. So if I see the audience looking at me like, wait, what on earth, where's this turn going? And, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm doing that intentionally, but sometimes I realize I need to backfill a little bit of information. So all my stories start out as, uh, they, they all start out as some little idea that I think can be funny. And then I have to ask myself questions. How could this happen? Why would this happen? Who would be involved? How do I make sure that the audience identifies with who the people are and what the events are? Because that's another thing that has to happen is, I have to have something in common with my audience. If I don't have any, if my story doesn't in any way meet my audience, um, you know, with some experience or some person that they've known, then they don't know what I'm talking about. And so the story fails. So I have to, a, a lot of my stories are about when I was a little kid. So that's easy. You know, I say when I was seven, well, just about everybody in the audience will have at some point been seven years old. So they don't have to know where I was or what I looked like or, you know, what I was doing exactly. But as soon as I was, as soon as I say I was seven, that gives people um, at least a, a basic framework that they can identify with. And then we can move on from there. And I can say when I was in school or I was at the pool or I was wearing blue jeans and just with each one of these things, I'm just making what I'm about to say more accessible to the audience so that they can better uh, imagine it in their head. That seemed like a long answer. No, it's a perfect answer, and especially, you know, having seen some of your work, that makes a lot of sense of how you think. Because you go on these digressions that are not digressions. Um, and I think that's what you're talking about, is I have to answer this question that you have to ask, and then have to bring that back to, you know, the overall story. Right, and I, I try to never put anything in my stories that isn't necessary for the story. Now that said, you know, especially in front of a live audience, there's always somebody, something that comes up, somebody in the audience doing something that I make a comment about or something I want to reference so that it'll come up, you know, two hours later in a different set. You know, I, I plant things intentionally beforehand. But when I'm putting a story together, 
I almost never include anything that isn't necessary for the story because I want the audience focused on what's happening. And I want them also at the end to feel like anything they were carrying through the story, you know, that they weren't carrying it in vain. Um, and then of course, one of my favorite things to do is to introduce something at the beginning of the story, first paragraph, first couple lines of the story, then not mention that again until the very end of the story where what I said at the beginning turns out to be, you know, the second most important thing to the punchline at the end of the story. So there's a yeah. lot of things that look like they're not important in my story, but as a matter of fact, are the critical elements of my story. Yeah, yeah. And I think somehow that makes it, I'm, I'm not even sure how this works, but, you know, I'm from, I'm a kid from uh, Baltimore. And I convinced my mom and my sister, you know, they're all from Baltimore, to come in and go to the festival this, this past year. And you were telling the story about geomorphology. And, and, uh -huh. and I remember how it ended. And I looked over at my mom. And my mom is, you know, 60 years in, in Baltimore City. And she's dying, like crying. And I'm like, yeah. Like, it's relatable. You've brought things full circle. Um, and somehow that connects to people. That's, that's really powerful stuff. When you, when you think about setting, I don't know if you call them taglines or whatever, that are at the beginning and then coming at the end, how do you make that connection? Um, some of that's magic, right? <laughs> uh, some of that I don't question. <laughs> I just sit down <laughs> with a piece of paper and a pencil and hope it works out. Because uh, I'm afraid if I look behind, if I look behind my own curtain too much, I'm going to ruin it and think about too much about the process rather than just letting what has always worked work. Now, that's not to say that I don't, you know, try innovative things and, and, and find different ways of doing things. But I mean, part of it is just I'm blessed with this sense of how to put these stories together. Now, that said, uh, it takes me, I mean, my story, sometimes it takes me a year to write a story. Sometimes it takes me 15 minutes to write a story. And, but part of the process is I always write them out. I mean, there's two or three that never got written out, but almost all, all of my stories are written out. So I write them. And the first time I'm writing it, I, I know that that's not how it's going to be when I get to the final draft. And because, um, I'll think of something. I'll think when I, when I start writing it, I, I might think I know how it ends. I don't always know how it ends, but I might think I know how it ends. And then by the time I get to the actual end of the story, it turns out that's not how it ended at all, which means I have to go back and I have to change the beginning so that the beginning matches the end, uh, which means I might have to add something in the middle, which might change the end again. So then I got to go back to the beginning. So it's a, it's a long process of, of going back and forth uh, just all the way through the story to figure out what little tiny bits of information I have to put where so that the audience uh, stores it in their brain somewhere but isn't focusing on that as being the most important aspect of the story so that when it turns out that it is the most in important aspect of the story later on, they're like, oh, man, how did I miss that that was the most you know important aspect yeah. of the story? So, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of hiding Easter eggs is part of what I'm doing uh, throughout the course of the story. 
And uh, what amazes me, and again, I'm not a psychologist. You probably talk about this better than I can. But it's fascinating to me that I can talk to an audience for an hour. I have no props. Uh, you know, there's no, uh, there's no computer screen playing a movie behind me. I'm just laying out words and just saying words for 60 minutes sometimes. And the audience's ability to store that information, collate that information, you know, make uh, uh, connections with that information. But then way at the end, maybe remember just a, a specific turn of phrase or the way I inflected a word an hour earlier that makes the end of the story, um, you know, really pop. So it's just, it's fascinating to me to watch the audience be able to do that. And then uh, another aspect of that is, or another thing that fascinates me, or, or I guess what I'm trying for, I like to watch the audience. I like to see their expressions um, and see them thinking, oh, I know exactly where this is going until the last 30 seconds of the story when I turn it and it still, it still fits completely within the logic of, of what I've presented as, you know, the laws of this story. Uh, so it still fits perfectly, but it is 180 degrees different uh, than they thought the end was going to be, which is even more satisfying to the audience and even more satisfying to me when I can still sum up, the, 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 the whole, uh, uh, all of the events that I presented, but sum them up in a, in a way that you never anticipate. Yeah. 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 Um, how do you test your stories? Are you always doing like mini shows? Do you always just do new material when you're out at new festivals or like, how do you test your, it comes in different ways. Uh, my children have my son. When I did the exchange place to the national festival, my son was like six months old. So he's been to the national storytelling festival every, just about every year, his life. And my daughter's 15 and so is she. So my children have grown up, not just uh, listening to my stories, but listening to the greatest storytellers in America. Uh, my kids, when I came on the storytelling scene, a lot of the storytellers that were on the scene had kids that were 19, 20 years old. And so a lot of the storytellers were sort of looking forward to being grandparents, and, and but they weren't yet. And then my kids were right at the age that were perfect for them to feel like surrogate grandchildren. So my children became the surrogate grandchildren of Donald Davis and Carmen Deedy and Bill Harley and Ed Stivender and all these other, other wonderful tellers. So anytime somebody came out with a new CD, it would be in my mailbox. Uh, so my kids were either listening <laughs> live to the greatest storytellers or they were listening as they were going to bed at night, every night to the greatest storytellers in the world. So, and my wife, of course, has been there the entire time too. So when I get a story written, the first people that ever hear it, uh, we homeschool our kids and my wife does. And I go into the lunch table and I read my story uh, to my kids and my wife. Uh, they're the first per per people that ever hear it. And they are harsh, man. I mean, they, they're super story savvy. And they're like, this works. That doesn't work. Go straighten it out. Don't come back till you fix it. Um, so once they've heard it, I have a real good idea whether it's good or not, what works, what doesn't work. And then I take it to a stage. And, uh, I, you know, I rehearse on stage. So usually the first audience that hears my story is the first audience that I'm in front of after I've read the story to my family for the first time. Wow. And then, I mean, that said also, because, you know, again, sometimes it takes me a long time to write a story. 
I might want to see if something works. And because I have a lot of characters that appear in a lot of my stories and the setting is a lot of my stories happen in this little town of Half Valley, West Virginia. I can sometimes take material that I'm working on and insert it into a story that I know works just to see what kind of reaction I get to the new material. So uh, a lot of times I'm just, I'm, 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 I, I call it Lego storytelling because I'm just clicking little pieces together that I know fit together, but don't, you know, if you look at a, if you build a wall out of Lego, you can see that some pieces are, you know, four, uh, four uh, dots long and some are two and some are yellow and some are blue. So they all fit together, but you can see that there's sections of different things. So, you know, I, I can click in, new material into one of these Lego segments just to see how it works. Yeah. Man. Um, do you, do you get together and workshop ideas with, with other storytellers or is it mostly you on your own or are you? Uh, yeah, no, uh, there, I just said three answers to that one question. <laughs> I don't, there are a couple of storytellers. I don't generally ask anybody but my family, when I'm writing a story, whether they think so, whether they think it's going to work or not. Once I've told a story on stage, there are a couple, I mean, maybe five storytellers who I will ask, what do you think of that? What do you think worked? What do you think didn't? Because I trust their craftsmanship. I trust their stagecraft. I trust their opinion of my stories. I, I, I agree with their sense of humor. Um, and so if they give me uh, critiques or criticism or whatever, it's important to me and I generally act on it. Now, that said, there are some people who if they say, you know, this is how you should do your story, I'm like, you can go talk to somebody else. You know, because uh, I just, I don't trust their work. I, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I just, I don't think that, um, I, I'm just not always, uh, I'm, there, let me just say this as positive as possible. There are certain, yes, there are certain people who, if they told me to fix something, I would take a good, strong look at it, but I don't do that beforehand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there any um, essential elements? I mean, you talked a little bit about like characters that are relatable. Are, are there any other sort of essential elements like that, that you think of when you when you're writing out a story? Well, the most important thing of any storytelling is you can't be the hero of your own story. Nobody wants me to stand on stage for 30 minutes and talk about what a great person I am. So if anything heroic happens in my stories, generally I'm telling about someone else doing it or I'm watching someone else do the heroic act. Um, because, you know, you've been in conversations in your life where someone keeps telling you what a great person they are. And all you can think is I want to get out of this conversation as quickly as possible. So you can never be the hero of your own story. Uh, and so to that end, uh, you know, I have this whole cast of characters, all of whom are very capable of doing very heroic things and me sitting by watching them so that I can tell about it. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my, uh, one of my, I, I probably have several chief goals, but you know, one of my goals is don't be the hero of your own story. And then, uh, I want to be funny. That's, uh, that's my main motivation is to be funny. I have been accused by some people of being the jelly donut of storytelling. They mean that in a bad way, uh, as though I don't have any, you know, there's, there's nothing to me, but, but fluff icing and, 
you know, jelly. But who on earth doesn't like a jelly donut, you know? I mean, <laughs> if you're coming to me because I'm comfort food, then come to me. I'm, I do I do a little bit of political stuff creeps into my stories. Um, if I'm doing a Sunday morning set, for example, at a, at, a, at a session called Sacred Storytelling, I might lay down some of my religious ideas. Um, but by and large, when I'm standing on stage, I am not interested in pushing your horizons. Uh, I don't want to get anywhere close to the outside of your comfort zone. I just want people to come to my storytelling sets, listen for half an hour or however long, forget about all the other problems in the world and just laugh. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with just being fun, family, clean entertainment for an hour um, that just, you know, lets people walk away feeling glad that they've come to hear what I had to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you, when you, I mean, first of all, I think that that's so true, right? Like we've all talked to people who you're like, man, this is all about you right now. Right. And in some sense, I think what you're doing, it feels very reminiscent of like um, some of the great stories of the past, right? Like Sherlock Holmes is not told from the viewpoint of Sherlock Holmes, right? It's like Watson. Um, right. And a lot of these great heroes in, you know, Greek or Roman mythology or whatever, they, they have people who follow them around and tell their stories. Um, and so there's probably something very old about that, very ancient. Um, and when you're thinking about just yeah. your, your stories and being funny, how do you know if something is funny? I mean, that might be, I mean that's, that's, that's a weird question. Like, of course you, of course you know but as someone who's crafting that experience for other people, how do, how do you kind of have an idea of like, is it like if it makes me laugh, then I tell it, is it? Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back to the magic. Uh, it's just uh, I, somehow I have developed a knack for knowing what's funny. And, and I don't know, I mean, because, I mean, just defining, you know, anytime you start to explain why something's funny, it starts to lose its humor. <laughs> you can so, kill it, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, part of it is I had an innate sense at the beginning, I guess. Uh, and now that I've been doing this for holy cow, close to 30 years. Um, now I've developed a sense when I'm writing based on experiences in the past of things that I've done on stage, things that other people have done on stage, things I've read that I know how funny works. And, but you know, uh, my son, when he was about, uh, four years old his favorite joke was how much did dinosaur earrings cost and no that's not right his favorite joke was how much do pirate earrings cost and of course the answer is about a buck an ear <laughs> and so he would tell that joke and then we would laugh at it because we're good parents and um then he would say why is that funny and i would have to explain to him well that's funny because uh a pirate, another word for pirate is a buccaneer, and then you have two ears, and so pirate earrings, if they cost $1 per ear, then pirate earrings cost about a buck an ear. So he took that information, came back the next day, and he says, how much do dinosaur earrings cost? I'm like, I don't know, and he says about a triceratops. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, is that funny? And I said, no, and he said, why? And so then I had to explain that, 
in the Buccaneer joke, there's a pun that's working that we need to know several different things. And another word for pirate is Buccaneer. Then another word for dollar is buck. And, you know, uh, but where Triceratops, none of that has anything to do with finance or, or dinosaur anatomy or anything like that. And then he went, I'm going to say for a solid year, anytime I would chuckle or my wife would chuckle. If we were listening to the radio and somebody said something mildly funny and, you know, you just kind of make one of those <laughs> sounds. My son would say, why are you laughing? And then we would have to explain why we were laughing. And so we went through a very intensive period, probably from when he was four to five, of having to explain everything that we laughed at. And I encourage when I do workshops on this, I encourage people to do this. Anytime you laugh at anything, ask yourself, why am I laughing at that? Because sometimes it's irony, sometimes it's physical comedy, sometimes it's wordplay, whatever it is. Uh, the more you think about why you're laughing at things, the better you begin to understand what it is that makes you laugh. And then you, you have a better sense of how to create situations that reflect the many different things that amuse us. Yeah. <laughs> Part of me is a little bit, um, well, like even that story is, is funny because it's like, to say that for a child to say that is not really funny, but the telling of that story is funny. You know, <laughs> the tri right. like triceratops. What? <laughs> like what? And even that is strange. And then I got, I have to ask myself, why is that? Why is that funny? I don't. I don't know. I have to think about that later. It could be a whole other show. That could be. That could be a whole other episode. Um, when. Do you do you see yourself branching into other sort of um, I don't know emotions right like I think of Donald Davis, who is another incredible storyteller, um, and he sometimes goes for this like nostalgic, sometimes sad, sometimes funny as well, um, sort of feel. I think a lot of his stories to me feel very sort of n nostalgic. Do you see yourself moving into other I don't know arenas or emotions? Um, I don't see any need to. Fair enough. <laughs> what I'm doing works, so it does, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, there are things in some of my stories that are touching or moving or sad, but that's generally not the point of the story. Yeah. So uh, I might have some meaningful things in a story, but again. I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now, and people come to me for a certain reason. People go to see Donald for what Donald tells. They go to see Carmen Didi for what Carmen tells. They come to see me for what I tell. And so, you know, occasionally, yeah, I do do other things, um, but not a lot because, you know, this is what I'm known for. And on the one hand, I'm afraid if I change too much, people won't want me anymore. Now, I have done and I always make it clear that this is what's going to happen before I do it. I do, I, I, I did several interviews with World War II veterans, and I, I've done two one-hour sets where I just do pretty much word for word what these guys told me. I, I sit down with them and ask them, tell me from the day you were drafted to the day you joined to the day you got out. And then we go through that, and, you know, these are many of them are just awful. You know, the things that happen to these guys that they live through. So I do do a few 
stories that are really serious um, based on World War II experiences. Uh, but again, that I, I tell, I make sure that the audience knows that that's what's going to happen before they get there, so that they're not coming looking to laugh and walk away bawling their eyes out. Yeah. Yeah, I've known a few people who've lived through World War II, and that is not a fun. Those are not fun <laughs> stories. No, they're not. Need I mean, those are the sort of stories we need to tell and to remember, but they're not. They're not fun. No, no, and I mean, people in, in, enjoy them, uh, if that's the right word, and uh, I'm happy to tell them um, because you know they need to get told, and these guys' experiences need to be remembered. Um, but again. It's not my, it's not my main, it's not my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So out of out of all of your um, stories, which one is your favorite? Do you is that or is that, or is that like asking you know which one is your favorite kid? Yeah, fortunately I only have two kids, so um, <laughs> <laughs> I do like them both about the same. Uh, and uh, but yeah, my stories. Uh, well, I tell the first time I ever won the Liars Contest, the only time I ever beat my brother, I, I told a story about my dog named Buck, whose mother was a German shepherd. His father is a basset hound. Uh, he inherited his mother's good looks, got his daddy's legs in the bargain. And so he's got this incredible nose, and I know he's going to be a great hunting dog. The only problem is he's scared of guns. So to, to keep him from being scared of guns, I get this bright idea to tie a rope from his collar to my belt loop and take him outside. I let him smell a bullet. I fire the bullet, and then, you know, I, not anticipating this, uh, he chases the bullet and ends up dragging me through the woods. And I end up frozen on the side of a cold train by my tongue, wearing nothing but my boxer shorts. And then it's really cold outside, so all the spit in my mouth gets blown out of my mouth, and a 50-foot wing of frozen gruel freezes from the side of the train. The train takes off. I fly around. Um, so that was the story that I that – the only story I ever beat my brother to liar's contest. Um, it's the story I told when I did my 15 minute set at the national festival in 2000. And so that is the story that really kickstarted my career and got me noticed. So the buck dog story is definitely, uh, for lots of reasons, one of my favorite stories. And before, when my wife and I were first married, you know, we, we rented houses and the dog had to live outside. And when we finally buck dogs was a real dog, when we finally bought a house, you know, I said, the dog's living in the house. And my wife said, I don't know if I want the dog living in the house. And I said, honey, that dog bought this house. <laughs> so <laughs> Buck is one of my favorite stories for sure. And then um, I have a story called Mayhem Dressed as an Eight Point Buck where me and my buddy Skeeter drive around. We dress up like deer and we drive around town uh, with a mannequin tied to the hood of the truck. So we drive around town like it's people season. <laughs> and we got one. So that story's been incredibly successful. I really enjoy that story. And then, I mean, I I like them all, right? <laughs> so, it's, yeah. I mean, it is kind of like what you say. And different stories are useful for different audiences. Um, and some stories are my go-to stories. I know they'll work just about in front of any audience. And then other stories are, are better suited for different audiences. So it's really fun to tell certain stories in front of certain audiences. Uh, and the rope swing story that you were referencing earlier, the geomorphology story, you know, that's a great story to tell. It's really fun. It's super complicated to tell. Oh and my gosh, I almost, so many moving parts. Yeah, and I it almost I I almost only tell that in front of storytelling audiences. 
I mean, I'm in front of a lot, you know, on the rotary clubs or, as I said, church spaghetti dinners. And not all those people are as versed in listening to story. And so they're not ready for all of the buildup that it takes in the rope swing geomorphology story. So that's a story that I like to tell, but I don't get to tell that often because it's huge, for one thing. I mean, it's 40 minutes long. Uh, it's complicated, and it needs an audience that knows how to listen to storytelling or is prepared to listen to storytelling to really understand it. So, yeah, a lot of times whatever story I'm currently telling as my new story is my favorite story. Um, but, you know, so my favorite story varies, but the buck dog and the mayhem are the two that I fall back on the most. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Um, well, let me ask you this. What what do you see as the difference between um, – stories that have a grain of truth and stories that that don't right like the um story about the rope swing i'm assuming at some point you and a buddy went out on a rope swing and someone got hurt or something because everyone has done that if you've well not everyone but a lot of people have have done that whereas you know the princess and the pickup truck um most people don't know princesses so like how do you think about things rooted in some sort of realness or versus fantasy. Well, the princess and the pickup truck is just a, a retelling of the princess and the pea. So people are familiar with that, but a lot of it is the way you start the story or the way the teller starts the story. If, if I say me and my buddy Skeeter in front of just about any storytelling audience in America, uh, people know, people who have listened to me know who Skeeter is. And so when I say, one time me and Skeeter, dot, 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 people's minds uh, get the framework of what happens in a Bill and Skeeter story. The princess in the pickup truck, uh, I very often started off with uh, Listen Up, Y'all, which uh, is sort of my variation of Once Upon a Time or A Long, Long Time Ago. And when you hear Once Upon a Time or A Long, Long Time Ago, your brain immediately knows that you're about to hear a story where animals can talk and spoons can fly and, you know, kings and queens and princesses do whatever they do and there's magic witches and you better, if you meet an old lady on the road who needs a crumb of bread or a coin and you only have a little, you better give it to her because she's going to give you the magic that, needs, that you need to, you know, solve the problem in the story. So the opening lines of a story uh, very often let the audience know what kind of story they're about to hear. Yeah. And again, at the, at a storytelling festival, I mean, when we do the national storytelling festival, when I get on stage, when Donald Davis gets on stage, most of the people in the audience know what a Donald Davis story looks like or a Bill Left story looks like. Um, but then, you know, there it's also maybe 25%. Maybe they don't know uh, what it's going to be. So we still need to establish what's happening. So, you know, I have a basic intro if people don't know the Skeeter stories or the, my little town of Half Dollar where I say, I grew up in a really small town called Half Dollar, West Virginia. We had two streets in our town. One was called Main Street and the other one I'm pretty sure was called, no, nah, that ain't Main Street. And so that immediately lets people know this is a story about a small town, this is a story about when I was a kid, uh, and this story is supposed to be funny. All of that information is deliberately uh, I, I'm deliberately communicating all that information as early in the story as possible so that you know, uh, so that you can be comfortable uh, knowing that I'm talking about something that if you don't identify with, you at least recognize. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're coming up on our time. I want to, and I want to be really respectful of, of your time. I got, um, what, it, what are some of the most common sort of no-nos that you see new, new people make or people who are trying to, to do, to, 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 to tell stories? What are the big no-nos that they might do? Well, the first big no-no is they make themselves the hero of the story. Uh, that just, that drives everybody crazy. And then uh, the ending, I work harder on the endings of my stories than on any other part of my story because it drives me crazy when someone gets to the end of a story and I don't realize that they're done. You know, they haven't wrapped up the elements. They haven't, um, they haven't answered the initial question that they asked or, or whatever it is. Uh, I like to make sure that my audience knows my story's done and everything is wrapped up with a neat little bow. So again, as I said earlier, I almost never introduce elements into a story that I don't account for at the end of the story. So generally, you know, if I introduce a bear, uh, a dog, um, and a jaybird, um, you know, by the end of the story, I'm going to explain why those three elements were in the story, even if they seem diverse when I put them in. So, you know, make a solid ending. Don't, don't include anything in your story that doesn't need to be there. And if something is in there, make sure that you provide a reasonable explanation why it's there. And then um, you have to remember that your audience is listening and they're, they're not reading and everybody, whereas people, you know, my wife and my son, my wife can read a Stephen King novel in about eight minutes, uh, as can my son. My daughter and I are much slower readers. And uh, this is a, a conversation that we have in our family. But when my daughter and I read, we have to read every word and hear that word in our head. When my son and my wife read, they can look at a word without hearing it and know what it means. So they can read more quickly because they're almost viewing it, I guess, as, I don't know, like a TV show or something. Whereas my, my daughter and I have to hear everything. So, but if I was telling the story to my wife, my son, and my daughter, they have to listen at the same time. There, there's no, you know, I can't speak slower for one person and quicker for another person. So the audience uh, as a whole has to assimilate all the information I'm giving them at the speed that I'm giving it to them. And when you're reading a book, you know, you get to page 908 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And you think, well, what color was Ron's sweater on page three? You can turn back to page three, see what color Ron's sweater was. Um, when you're listening to one of my stories, it's really rude to raise your hand and be like, excuse me, can you go back a minute, you know, 1.23 and say that line again? So you have to, when you're putting a story together, make sure that you're only giving the audience the information that they need so that they're not getting bogged down. Um, and it has to be enough information that they clearly get a picture of what they're supposed to be seeing and, but not so much information that it's slowing them down. I would say those are the three most important things. And then if you're in a storytelling festival, you got to stay within your time slot. If you have a 30 minute time slot, a 15 minute time slot, don't go long. Gotcha. Oh yeah. Know your story. My wife's telling me, know your story. Right. You have to get up on stage and know your story and you have to be confident that it's good. Cause if you're nervous or not confident in the material, there's no reason why your audience is going to buy into it. Mm. Yeah. The confidence piece is probably really big, especially when you're performing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who do you like? Who 
who, what, what storytellers, and this can be literary or on stage, that, that you listen to or, or that you read? Uh, well, uh, one of my biggest influences, obviously, is Mark Twain. And then uh, um, Farley Moat is a Canadian writer who wrote, he's most famous for Never Cry Wolf. Patrick McManus wrote, um, he still writes the stories for the back of, he did for Field and Stream, and then it was Outdoor Life. I don't know if he's still, I had to quit reading this stuff because I was afraid I'd start stealing. Um, <laughs> so those are my, you know, three of my favorite uh, writers. Oh, yeah, Rudyard Kipling. Um, Jack London, my wife, standing here telling me who I like. So, you know, those are my literary influences. And then, um, well, some of the storytellers we've already mentioned, Donald Davis, obviously, it's just incredible to see what he does with a few words and a simple situation. Ed Stivender, again, is my storytelling rabbi. Uh, Carmen Dini, Bill Harley. There's a guy named Paul Strickland who does a lot. He's not quite made it into the storytelling world yet, but he does a lot of fringe festivals and stand-up comedy. But he's got sort of an absurdist, uh, surreal kind of storytelling style that I really like. Um, Andy Offit Irwin. Uh, I'm trying to think who I'm getting in trouble if I don't name them. Lynn Ford. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, that's a long list of, of storytellers yeah. uh, that stand on. And then, you know, the Coen Brothers movies, those are just fascinating pieces of storytelling. I love to see what they do in a movie. So, you know, that's another sort of audio visual influence. David Bowie, Wes Anderson. Yeah. I could go on. Well, look, man, thank you so much for your time. Um, I have enjoyed this. Um, where can people find more about you? If students want to get some of your, you know, all my students are online, and so they also commute long distances. So some of uh -huh. your audio programs will be great. Where, where can they find you? Well, I got a bunch of stuff on iTunes. And then you can go to my website, leppstorytelling.com, L-E-P-P, storytelling.com. And there are a couple of links there to some YouTube videos. I have a YouTube channel. I honestly don't know how to get there except to go to my website and click on the videos on my website, and then they take you there. Um, but there are a bunch, there's a bunch of videos of me on YouTube. They're not all good. Only the good ones are the ones that I put up there. Uh, so there's that. And then hopefully there's going to be a podcast, and that's all I can say about wow. that. But hopefully there will be a podcast in the near future uh, of – myself and actors acting out some of my stories so that look for that wonderful. and then yes. i've got three books of humorous stories two children's books you can find all of that on my website okay well thank you so much bill glad to do it thanks for having me all right three more questions for you <laughs> 